All right. Well, I hope you're all doing well. It's um, good to be back again. And um, I'm thankful for this opportunity to keep on moving forward with James. And I hope we can take this time and um, use it effectively and use it profitably and um, in a way that will help us as we move on into, um, into this week. How many of you, did anybody read this section of James? We're talking about James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Um, did anybody read that chapter this week? All right. Does anybody, well, I'll ask, um, so here's your chance to sound super spiritual, Darby. Um, <laughs> did you have any questions from that chapter? Were there anything that you said sometimes... I may think about, let's put it this way, if you did, you're in good company with basically all of the church since about 400 <laughs> AD, so there's no shame in saying you had questions, right? Does anybody know I'm fishing for, there's something that lurks in this passage that has troubled the church and it's troubled basically Christians or caused trouble over the years for James. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, does James disagree with Paul? So you may not have necessarily caught it because sometimes, and if you didn't, that's actually probably a good thing because it means maybe you were listening to James, right? You were saying, James, talk to me. But sometimes um, people have noticed this. So I'm going to read just a couple of verses and just to kind of bring this out because it's one of the, it's one of the things that we'll want to, to think through uh, tonight when we talk about this passage. So here's what Paul says, and these are Paul's words, at least as translated into a common English translation. For if Abraham was declared righteous by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And Ab or, uh, Paul, that's Romans chapter 4, verse 2. Paul goes on to say, Abraham was not saved by works. That's his whole point. If he was, our faith is what, what I'm saying to you is not very helpful. Here's James. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? By the way, I'm sorry, I should have um, used an older translation. In Romans chapter 4, 2, Paul says, I used a translation that says declared righteous by works. Paul uses the same word. Paul says, if Abraham was justified by works, then he has some reason to boast. And Paul goes to say that can't be. James says, Abraham was justified by works, right? They use the exact same word. The word justified is the same word. It's the same statement. One, is one says, we are not, Abraham was not justified by works. One says that he was. Another statement from James. And similarly, was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another way? So we've already got this, this contradiction has troubled people. In fact, um, he gets picked on probably more than he should, but Martin Luther actually felt that James should be taken out of the Bible for this very reason when he dealt with these passages. So that's what I mean, we're in good company in church history if we're having a struggle with this. Um, greater minds than mine have, have, have had those questions. How about Romans chapter four, verse five? But to the one who does not work but believes, that's our word that we've said, who trusts or has faith. It's the same word. In the one who declares the ungodly righteous, his faith is credited as righteousness, or he is justified by faith. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul. Those are Paul's words. Here are James' words. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
So you can see how it begins to raise questions. How exactly does one person, one writer say, we're justified by faith alone? We're justified only by faith. And then another writer says, we're not. We're justified by works, not by faith. Very explicitly, not by faith or not by faith alone. So that's really, in a sense, that's kind of the, 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 the area, the, the direction we're going tonight is to see if we can find a way to help us or give us a framework to listen to James. We're going to talk about how we maybe reconcile James and Paul, but in some ways I think we're going to find that we're going to want to take our time if we listen to James. I think we'll begin to figure out that James has his own voice and his own way of thinking about this topic in these words. And so that's where we want to do. So the first thing that I would like to do is go back and just do a quick recap of where we've come in James, because I think it's fairly important that if we're going to listen to James and if we're going to say, you know what, let's, let's let James talk and see if we can sort out what he's trying to say for us. If we're going to do that, it's going to be good to sort of to think through roughly the whole book. So just a basic recap, at least the way that I've laid it out in the past, is I've said that in James chapter 1 verses 2 through, through about 18, that James is dealing with this question of, or he's answering, he's offering us a foundation of what I called God's trustworthiness or the fact that God is good. Because I think that James is working with this idea. I'm going to give you, we're going to talk about this, this metaphor um, several times um, tonight, but I'm going to give it to you up front because I think it's going to summarize roughly what's happening. So I was um, watching something on YouTube the other day, and I can't even remember where it was or what it was. I can't remember if it was somebody defusing a bomb or somebody with doing one of those chemistry experiments or something that they do. But they were, the one person was, the one person was over here doing his thing, and his friends were saying, his friends said, come on, man, you got this. We trust you. And the comment that struck me was, the, the thing that the guy said that was working with the bomb, he said, man, for people that trust me, you're sure standing a long ways away. Right? And you think about what that means, right? The implication is if you're like, yeah, we trust you, but then you walk way, way, way out of the bomb blast, what does that say about your level of trust? A little bit, right? Think about what trust means. If you actually get down and dirty with the word trust, what it means is you just are going to walk over there. No offense, guys. <laughs> you're going to walk over there and stand next to someone and you're going to be there because that's what trust means, right? It's not going to go off. I trust you. And so I'm going to argue, or I think I would argue, that basically the book of James, James is leading us towards that particular scenario that I just laid out. I would, I'm going to say it again when we get there, but actually I think chapter 2 verses 14 through 20, what is it, 14 through 26, is where James actually, in his own words, but basically says this same, this same thing. He says, if you tell God you're going to trust him, you got to stand by him, right? you got to actually do, you got to walk over there and be next to God while he's defusing the bomb, okay? And so I think in the background, that's roughly where James is headed as sort of an overarching thought for actually, I think, very likely the whole book. And if you think about that, one of the things then that he does, and this is how I think chapter one factors into that, I think in chapter one, James is actually spending time telling us that you can actually trust God, building up God's character. You remember when he said, you know what, if you have wisdom, he, 
ask from God. And then do you remember, he gave us a number of things that said God, God gives generously and without nitpicking and without whining and complaining about how bad you are and how dumb you are and that kind of thing. So right there from the beginning, that's in about chapter, uh, that's in verse five and six. James is beginning to develop, he's beginning to say things that, that remind us that yes, you can trust God. God is good. God is not interested in um, causing you trouble, etc., etc. In chapter 1, verse 13, James says again, please don't ever fall into the trap of thinking that God is testing you. God is pushing you. And the analogy might be, did anyone ever have a teacher like this that you know gave you a test or quiz and you know that they put questions on the t quiz that simply were there for nobody to get, they just wanted to watch you fail? Not the, not the test, but you know the kind of questions I'm talking about that you can't really get and you know they're worded in just the way to, to at least valence you towards getting it wrong. Right, And so James says in chapter 1, verse 13, God doesn't play that kind of game. When we look at God and say, oh, you're testing me, sometimes we might feel, God, you're, 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 you're going out of your way to make it, so it shades me towards failure. And James said, no, you can't ever think that way, that God is in this for your good, that God is in there um, and doing good for you. And then, of course, uh, chapter 1, verses 18, uh, verse 16 on through 18, Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. There's no shadow of turning. We said there's no God kind of dangling the hat here and saying, oh, do you want your hat? And you jump up to get it and he lifts it up, right? He changes the bar and moves it so you can't get it. God's not like that. There's no shadow where you look and he makes it so you think you see something, but then he was kind of teasing you and it's not really there. There's not that kind of thing. He's in it for you. And the last verse of that section, chapter 1, verse 18 James basically says, God brought you forth in the gospel. And I think his point is, look, God has a plan for you. He's not, God has you as a plan to, to show good to you. He doesn't, he hasn't singled you out as like, um, uh, uh, like one of those, uh, a rat maze trying to put you through this and see if you can get it or see if you can't or anything like that. He's actually has a plan that is moving forward with goodness and for your good. So that was the first part of chapter one. And then the second part or the second James's argument sort of moves out of establishing, founding us in God's goodness, moving us towards thinking about trust to say we need to be calm. We need to um, be quiet. We need to stay away from anger because those are the things that move us away or those are the things that can push us when we're always talking, when we're always just making noise, listening to ourselves talk, when we are full of anger. Those are the things that push us away from actually being able to walk over and stand next to God, right? In that sense of um, if you trust God, you'll be over there while he's defusing the bomb. And so those are things that move us away from that. And then he says, turn and look. And uh, if you remember, this is the passage that talks about looking, someone who looks in the mirror. And I said, I think the mirror, what you see in the mirror is what the gospel shows you, right? And so the gospel shows you, James, um, I would argue, James does not say this, but I think it's what he's hinting at, is that you look in the mirror and the gospel, what you would see is a sinner, who has been saved graciously, who has been given a gift that you did not deserve, right? And then you remember James goes on to say, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, and I think roughly what he's saying is, here's the thing, you look in, 
you look into the mirror and you see the gospel and you see what you are in Jesus Christ. You see that everything that's good about you, if there is good, you owe everything to the work of God in Jesus Christ. And then you turn out of that mirror and you walk away and you start to think you're pretty good at this religious stuff, right? So you look in the mirror and you see that you didn't deserve it, but you got it for free. You turn around and you walk away and what you see in your own mirror is kind of somebody who's pretty switched on at church, somebody who knows a lot about how to interpret the Bible and is, loves to preach and tell everybody how to do the Bible, right? Ex-missionary type of a thing. You see where I'm going with this, right? Uh, you start to think you're pretty cool with the religious stuff and James says, just be a bit mellow on that. True religion isn't leaving what you see about yourself in the gospel and beginning to play the religious games, it's going out and helping the widows and orphans, right? Because effectively, that's what we are. There's no difference. And in James' culture, the widows and orphans were considered, I, I touched on this, people who were down and out, wives who had lost their husbands were considered unlucky in a spiritual sense. They were, they were the forgotten people in the culture, right? God had said in the Old Testament, you need to pay attention to widows and orphans, but in practice, in this day and for James' audience, widows and orphans were kind of considered the low, the forgotten, the people that God had sort of said, yeah, why don't you guys do your thing? I'm going to go over here with the cool people. The cool people were the people who went to the temple, the people that had big names in the synagogue, the people that had this religious stuff. And so James then says, if you're starting to think about exercising this trust, God is not impressed when he's diffusing the bomb over there and you start talking all big about how religious you are over here, right? You need to walk over. And he's saying walking over is going to the widows and orphans. It isn't being sure that you've got um, religion and that you've got all of this figured out. So it begins to, he begins to push us in that direction. And then chapter two, the very last verse of chapter one says, Keep yourself unstained from the world. Oh, one thing I did want to say. I think sometimes it's easy for us to get confused because these verses are very famous when it says you should be a hearer, not a doer, right? Look in the mirror, be someone who goes away and becomes a doer. I'd like to clarify at least what I think is going on there. Sometimes it's easy for us to think about we focus on the doer, but I think what's happening is in this context, he's saying, be someone who lives out your life in light of what you saw in the mirror of the gospel, right? It's not just go out and do a bunch of stuff. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But the doer here is the one who does or the one who manifests what you saw in the mirror. And you remember what we saw in the mirror? It was the gospel. So it's not just go out and do a lot of things. It's go out and be a person that can live their life on the basis of what you saw about what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Where you were taken from darkness to light, all of those things, that's what motivates you. And so the doing is not just doing good stuff. The doing is doing things that reflect your understanding of what God did for you in Jesus. Okay, so chapter two, the end of chapter one says, stay unstained for the world. And I said, chapter two, verse one through 14, I think James is gonna give us an example of the way in which the world can stain us, an example to them. And it's something that I think was very poignant or very much in their face. The example of favoritism, and you might remember I, I talked about the idea of favoritism being when a rich person comes to the church, that represents your livelihood. It represents 
in a sense, life and death. I hate to put too fine a point on it, but it's like, it's like life and death. That's how you get a job when you're people like this. And so, so he, he begins to move us into this way of thinking about um, trust. What does it mean, right? Now, when you've looked at a rich person who represents food for you for two or three days or maybe even a month, you looked at that rich person, now do you start to see there's the temptation. God has said over here, God's defusing the poor person bomb. God has said, hey, poor people are cool too. And you've said, I think I'll stay over here with the rich people, right? So James is bringing this up and he's bringing it up not just to, to make fun in a way, but he, I think that he's giving this as an example to people to drive home what it means when you say, yes, I trust God, and actually think about walking over there where the bomb is. Because it's bigger than just, well, let's, let's, let me talk about how much I trust God. Let me say all these things. It's about what are the choices, what are the ways in which you have staked your life, you have said, I'm going to trust God, I'm going to be with God. And so he gave us that, um, that example. And then um, he talked about, uh, the idea of think of what happens when you do this, when God has said, I'm over here with the poor people, and you've said, I think I'll stay over here with the rich people. He gave us those examples where uh, the example of um, where you begin to, to sort of make your own way. And you remember, uh, you may remember, um, he uses the example of, well, if you're okay in adultery, you don't commit adultery, but you commit murder, watch what happens right? What, what's the problem with that? You can't sort of make your own way. And James, James calls us out or calls out and basically says, look, you can't just go to God and say, yeah, God, I agree with you in the adultery department, but I'm not quite there on the murder department, right? In other words, what have you done? God is the one that has made these laws. And when you say, I kind of, I really don't want to stand over there on the murder thing, you've basically said, Effectively, I don't think any of us, anybody really says it in these many words, but effectively our actions are saying, God, we're a little bit smarter than you, right? You have said don't murder, but I kind of think I'm going to, and again, I'm using James's words here. I don't think most of us have that trouble, but that, those are James's words. So he says, be careful of that when, when you are over here. And I think in the background, it's over here saying, look how much I trust God. I don't commit adultery, but you're getting in a little murder on the side, right? James is saying you have to, when you make this claim to trust God, it has to go down all the way, all the way through your life. You can't kind of dip your toes into trusting God. And so there's a theme there that I just want to recap because I've, we'll start over again from the beginning because I think James is moving us towards something that's a problem for him. It's a sub-theme that was woven into everything that we talked about, and it's the theme of double-mindedness, the theme of just dipping your toe. James is going to say you can't just dip your toe into trust of God. You can't kind of test those waters, right? What happens? You test and the water's freezing and you run away, right? What kind of behavior is that? It's actually the double-mindedness, the wave behavior of chapter one, right? I want God's wisdom, but then you test it. Well, I didn't want it that way, and you want to start moving back, right? And so um, this idea of double-mindedness is something that's going to be woven all the way through to the end of the book. And James has prepared us from the beginning, right? There's no sort of toe-dipping halfway. One of the first ways he said it is, consider your trials joy. Right? If that's not commitment to trusting God, I don't know what is, right? When you actually think, I can look at these things that I hate and that I fear, 
and I'm going to say this is good. This is something I can be happy about. How about in uh, chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, when he said, let the poor man boast in his poverty, let the rich man boast in his riches, right? All of those things, you can't kind of, you, you, if you say you're trusting God, you can't kind of keep your toe dipped in the pool of riches over here, right? You have to be willing, if you lose everything, to be the same, the same Christian that you were before you lost everything. And so again, wholeheartedly, James is saying, starting to give us this theme, when you go with God, you have to commit 100%. You have to be on board with trust. It's not good enough to stand over here and say, yeah, you get that bomb, Lord. You have to walk over and stand there, all right? And I would argue, this is just a bit of a joke, but I would argue possibly that um, we'll see this later in the passage tonight, but I would argue possibly that God might actually even be happy if you walk over and say, I don't believe you can defuse the bomb, but I'm gonna stand here anyway, but I trust you can, right? I'm joking about that. I think we should believe he can, but the idea to make the distinction between those two words, you can stand here and sort of you can trust without actually knowing the outcome or without even being sure of the outcome. You stand there not because you know he'll defuse the bomb, but because of who he is and because you can trust him that he's um, doing that. All right, so with that said, let's, um, let's start in our passage tonight. All right, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The first thing that we want to say is this. James here, I would argue, is he is not laying out salvation. He's not telling us the mechanics of our salvation or how it all works. He's interested in encouraging and building you up to be the kind of people who can say, oh, I don't want to, but I'll walk over here next to the bomb, right? So he's not his intention, I believe, is not to explain all of the intricate details about how everything works, to explain all of that, but his, his interest is in moving over and helping us become people who see, I don't want to stand over there, but I can and I will because I trust God. So with that said, I think that's going to change the way we can listen to some of these words. If someone says he has faith but not works, can that faith save him? By the way, this word faith is the same word as trust. All right, it could be belief, and we'll see that in a second. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and the one of you say to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also is faith by itself. It doesn't have works. It's dead. All right, for the moment, I don't think there's a lot um, that we really need to say there. But let's get on to the next, the next section. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And then basically the author or James says, you know what? Show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. So let me ask you a question. How would you demonstrate your faith to me without doing something? Can you think of a way to demonstrate faith that doesn't require walking over and standing next to the bomb? Think of that scenario. How would you demonstrate when this person says, you're standing quite a ways away for people that trust me? How would you demonstrate that you actually do trust? Just keep arguing? I'm telling you I trust you, right? Or you, what could you do? You could walk over and stand right there, right? And so I think that's where James is headed. This idea, you cannot separate claims of faith from the works that show that that faith is is, is coming out. And again, 
I would argue that he's really thinking in terms of the gospel. You cannot claim to have the gospel working out in you. You cannot claim to have seen the gospel in the mirror and then just simply said, but I'm not going to walk over there. All right, someone will say, let's see. Um, you believe, verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Just one thing to say here, that statement, God is one, that's what, that is what in, in the uh, Jewish religion or for, for, for Jewish people, that's called the Shema. It is the, it is the quintessential statement that defines people of Israel. It's what they said constantly over and over. You know how we sometimes hear, it's not exactly the same, but we have, you hear like there are stock phrases that like Muslims will say, right? Some of the ones we know you, that we hear, um, what, like Allah Akbar or something like that, right? And you hear how that's used. This was used similar to that. In other words, this is not just a statement of theology, but this actually is a way of saying, look, you talk big, right? You claim this. And what it means is it, it comes from Deuteronomy, let's see, chapter 6, verse 4, I think. And for the Jewish people, it was, the define, it was what defined you as a Jew. And this was the single quickest way to say, I am with God, I'm in God's camp, all right? And so when James uses this phrase, it's more than just a theological statement. It's saying, look, you go around saying this thing that shows everybody how religious you are, how Jewish you are, and let me ask you a question. You know what? That's really good. But wait a second, even the demons believe it. And this is the play on word. That word believe there, the demons believe, is the same word as trust. It's the same word as believe and have faith and have trust in this passage through the whole book of James. All right, it's the same word. And yet I think we translate it in English because we recognize the difference between believe, right? The devils believe, demons believe, and they believe that God is over there. They believe that God is one. They say the right thing, but they never take that step and walk over and say, yeah, I'll be over here with you, God. And I think that's what James is saying. That's his distinction that he would make is that trust is different from belief. There's the belief that says, I know something or I talk a lot about something. And then there is that step where you actually submit and you hand over and you walk over and help God defuse the bomb. All right. And so that's, I think, um, what, what he's saying there. They believe and they believe it so much. They have so much conviction. They shudder. They actually shiver. Do you want to be shown even more? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Here's where I just need to say a few things about that word. The word justified. Can someone tell me what does justified mean to you when you hear it? What does it mean? Made righteous. Made righteous. I'm going to pick on you. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, that's actually right. That's a good definition. But here is a just raw Bible study principle. Words can have different meanings in different contexts. Remember, we've talked about that. So let me read a verse to you um, from, let's see, uh, King James. I'm going to read it in King James because it highlights the issue. Luke chapter 7, verse 29. And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. So does God need to be made righteous? <laughs> all right so we have that let me read to you uh let me read to you first timothy chapter 3 verse 16 jesus was manifest in the flesh justified in the spirit did jesus need to be made righteous 
I would say no. I'm going to say no. <laughs> right. So here's the point. The word justified that's translated here has multiple meanings. One of the meanings is this. Listen to this one. This is Matthew chapter 11, verse 19. Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Right? It's sort of the same way that we use justify in actual English. Someone comes and makes a claim to you and says, well, I think this, I think the earth is flat. And you could say to them, well, justify those claims, right? Justify that. Or we might say, someone says, oh, I believe this, or I trust this, I think this will happen. And then it happens, and we might say, your faith was vindicated, right? Do you know, have, you, have you heard that kind of usage where you say, oh, the events that happened vindicate or they hold out, they prove that what you thought or what you claimed was actually correct. So I'm going to argue, we could, we could do more about this. I have more verses, but we don't want to take all the time. Uh, in fact, all of your translations, I don't think there's any translation other than the King James. In 1 Timothy 3.16, almost all translations say, he was vindicated by the Spirit, right? And what it means is the word is justified, same word as in James, same word as in Paul. But what it means here is the Spirit showed that when Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, those claims were vindicated. He vindicated those claims. Does that make sense? So this word justified can have that sense of here you're saying something or this is being put out there. And then we think about it and we prove that correct or we prove that right. So I'm going to argue that that's a better flavor for what's coming up here. All right. Was not Abraham our father? And I'm going to I'm going to supply this. It's not right in the text, but I'm going to supply this. Was not Abraham our father? Were not his claims to I trust God? Were they not vindicated by his deeds when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Right. And I think what he's hitting at is this. Abraham didn't say, uh, God, yeah, no, you go over there. Um, I'm going to stand over here with my son Isaac. Right. He took Isaac and he walked over, right? That step, those steps moving across are where when, when Abraham says, yeah, I really trust God, but Isaac and I are going to stay over here, right? You kind of say, okay, God said go do that, but yeah, right? But when Abraham gets his son and walks over here, now you can start to see, hey, I, I'm thinking that's some serious faith or some serious trust. At least for me, it would be. Um, all right, so I think that's what he's getting at. You see the scriptures fulfilled when Abraham trusted God, it was counted to him as righteousness. At that point, that trust, the movement, as it was, as it was demonstrated or as it was moved out when he took Isaac over here next to the bomb, if I can keep milking that analogy, that's when God said, you're doing the right thing. That's, I appreciate your trust. Okay, Abraham trusted God and he was called a friend of God. So you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Let me rephrase that just a bit. A person's claim to trust God is vindicated by what they do, not simply by their claims. Oh, yeah, I'm super trusting. I have a super lot of faith in God. Okay, so that's how I take uh, this to be. A person's claim to have faith is vindicated or it's proven or it's demonstrated by works. It's not just enough to say, oh yeah, I got super trust alone. And I think that's what James is doing. I think here he's, he's not thinking about what it's going to sound like compared to Paul. He's interested in exhorting us or moving us to see 
when we claim to have faith, when we claim to be trusting people, we have to take those steps and walk across. And he's setting us up for the rest of the book. He's going to give us a series of these ways in which the world or our thinking is going to ask us to stay here, but God is going to ask us to go there. And so I think this is the end of an introduction, so to speak. He's wrapping up and he's saying, just like Abraham, just like Rahab, we have to be people who are willing to take that walk. Let me read one more thing just from Rahab, because Rahab did make truth claims or she made claims to trust. In Joshua chapter 2, verse 8, before the men lay down, before the men were hidden, she came on the roof and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land will melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, to Og, you devoted them to destruction. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heavens above and on the earth beneath. And then she said it, and then she said, well, I'm going to stay over here in my kitchen while you guys figure out how to get out of here, right? What did she do? She actually went over, and she actually covered them up, and people came, and she, we, we don't have time to talk about this, but she lied through her teeth. Uh, we, won't, we won't worry about that for a moment. She lied and said, no, there's nobody here, and let them go. So she didn't just stand and say, oh, uh, yeah, you guys be warmed and fed, but I'm a big fan of God. She actually put her money where her mouth is. And so I think that's what James is doing here. I think that's how we recognize or how we give him credit for he's not laying out a theology of salvation. He's asking us very simply and wrapping up the introduction to the book to say, here's what I'm asking you. When you claim to trust God, it involves walking from here to go stand by the balm. And the rest of the chapter or the rest of the book actually is going to keep moving us through how are the ways we sometimes fail that and how are the ways that sometimes um, we can get distracted in that. All right, as um, I'm finished with that, as I often do, I'm going to go ahead and finish this up and read my translation and then we'll be done. Again, not a translation. Please don't call it a translation. I'll read sort of a summary of what I'm thinking we can find here. Think about it, friends. What good is it when someone claims to trust God, but that trust is not actually apparent in the way that they live? Not in the things that they say, but in the things that they do. Is that really a saving faith? What do you think is going on in a situation like this? Suppose the person next to you is lacking enough clothes to stay warm and enough food to stay healthy. You tell them, ah, good luck out there. I'm really hoping you find the clothes you need and can get some food somewhere and then walk away. Where is the good here? How is your trust in God at work. We start to get a sense then that our talk about trust and the choices that we make in life that reflect that trust cannot really be separated. It's just nonsense to claim to trust in God while at the same time never actually doing anything that requires trust. If, of course, someone will say, they'll propose, people might be keeping, one person might keep his trust simple and on the inside, while others might show their trust by doing stuff. My question is this, how would you demonstrate the reality of your trust without actually reflecting it in your life? If I were to do something that can only come out of trust, that would demonstrate that I have the trust I claim. For you, the I have plain trust person, all you have is words. 
oh, for sure, you might believe with complete conviction that God exists and that he is the only God. You're in good company there, for the demons believe the same things and with enough conviction that it makes them shiver with fear. Good work, though. You nailed it. You silly numpty. How much further do I have to go to make it clear that your claim to trust in God cannot be separated from the actual living that grows out of that trust? Think of Abraham. His claim to trust God was vindicated when he went ahead and offered his son Isaac on the altar. There was trust here and action that demonstrated that trust. Abraham's trust was fleshed out by what he did and made complete by his action. This is what the Bible is talking about when it says, Abraham trusted God, and that is what is accounted to him as making him right. He was even called a friend of God. So you see, a person's claims to trust God are vindicated by its actual outwork in their life, not by saying the words, I trust God. Take Rahab as another example. Her claim to trust in Yahweh was vindicated by her actions in hiding the messengers and then sending them safely on their way. I don't know how else to say it. Just like a body without a soul isn't an actual person, so also claims to trust God without any actual effect don't represent real trust. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, your kindness to us, for your patience, for your goodness in um, giving us your word that uh, challenges us, that, that helps us to think um, more clearly about what we're doing. I pray that you would help us to continue to grow in our ability to f reflect the truth of the gospel, help us to grow in our ability to trust you and to, um, to, to live lives that reflect our conviction that you're good and that you're on our side. Thank you for blessing us with this week, and I pray that you'd bless us on into the next week. In Jesus' name, amen.